Hey, y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call the Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play the Big 615 on TuneIn. Okay. I think we're live. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's going to eventually join in tonight. I have with me a really esteemed, honored guest that I really look up to for his work in the paleo contact field. And who I'm talking about is Paul Wallace. But just a little bit of housekeeping before uh, we start the show. Um, when you guys see this, um, you know, join the Patreon. Uh, people are loving the Patreon content. Join the Discord. People are having fun in the Discord. What happens is we they watch the shows and then afterwards they kind of get in the, go in the Discord and like comment as to what's going on. And um, and we can kind of talk about uncensored stuff in the Discord as well. And then all, all my links will be in the in the uh, in the uh, description. But as far as my guest, I have with me Paul Anthony Wallace, an internationally best-selling author whose books probe the world's ancestral narratives for their insight into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. As a senior churchman, Paul served for 33 years as a church doctor, theological educator, archdeacon in the Anglican Church of Australia. He's published numerous titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality and is a popular speaker at conferences around the world. Paul was known for his best-selling series of Paleo Contact, Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, and now the new The Eden Conspiracy. They're all endorsed by George Norrie and Eric Von Daniken. Paul's interviews and documentaries are on the fifthkind.tv, and uh, they're watched by mil- literally millions worldwide. So this is a, a huge honor to have him on the show, and I want to give him a big, warm welcome. Uh, and uh, Paul, thank you for joining me. How are you? G'day, Rob. It's great to be with you again. I'm really well, thanks. And how are you going? Oh, I'm doing good, thank you. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about the Eden Conspiracy. I got a chance to read it. I loved it. Um, but, and, and what I wanted to talk about was like the, the amazing endorsements that you got in the book. Again, you got this in Escaping from Eden. And um, I remember, I think they called Escaping from Eden, like the 2020, the best book as far as like, it, they were calling you the, like the new Eric Von Daniken. How does it feel to be held up in such high regard? Oh, I've got to be honest. It feels wonderful. I'm a longstanding admirer of Eric Von Daniken. He really is the... Uh, is the godfather of paleo contact in the modern era. His book, Chariots of the Gods, was the gateway book for paleo contact into mainstream conversation. And that's my ambition for my books as well, that they will be gateway books for people who might not take this topic at all seriously, might not know there's anything serious to look at, but they could come from that start point, read one of my books, and by the end realize there's something serious here for them to give their attention to. So to hear those comparisons made I, uh, is very exciting for me. 
Well, I see the kind of views you get on the fifth kind and, 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 and the work you did with Maura Baglino and stuff. I, I really feel like we're coming to a point where people are starting to take this topic more seriously. I think a lot of, for a long time, it was looked at in the mainstream as taboo, but now with like people like Haim Ashed coming out and, uh, you know, the government looking into UFOs a lot more and people, oh, I think, oh, I think it's kind of like an unsaid thing around the world that like people are starting to understand that our reality isn't what we thought it was and our history wasn't what we thought it was. Yes, I think you're right. And the topic of whether or not we are in a populated cosmos, whether or not we're in contact, that's more in the news this year than it's been since the 1940s with David Grush coming forward and talking about the uh, craft that uh, he believes on the basis of his privileged information that the U.S. has in its curation. We had Hamer Shed, as you mentioned, uh, Christmas 2020, speaking about covert government level collaboration with ET visitors and many other serious credential people around the world backing that story up. So as well as Hema Shed, we heard from Alain Jouillet, the former chief of French intelligence, Chris Mellon, the former assistant secretary of defense for presidents George W. Bush and President Clinton. We had a decade ago, we had the Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev saying we are in contact at a covert government level. And when he made his statements back in 2008, I think it was, he was uh, way ahead of the herd. But in the last four years, since 2019, when the Pentagon came clean and said, yes, we've had a unit in place for the last 70 years examining physical materials retrieved from UFO crashes, from that moment on, there's been a great intensification and an acceleration of statements that we could call disclosure. So more and more people are talking about the question of, are we in contact? Do we have alien artifacts? And my books, the Eden series, say if we listen to the world's ancestral narratives, we shouldn't be surprised to hear any of this. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Before we get to the Eden conspiracy, I thought a really good question for you was like, do you think that these god, these 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 figures that we can once that man once considered gods, that 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 people like you and I think once you know that these gods once walked with man, or and that's kind of what I was getting to. Do you think that they kind of still control our reality in the background or incognito, or do you think they kind of left Earth and said? We'll let the humans kind of evolve. What do you think, if you had to speculate, what do you think happened to them? Well, cultures all around the world talk about a time when we were governed directly by colonizers from elsewhere in the cosmos who had turned up and taken over Project Earth and ran us as their working class. And so many ancestral narratives then reach a point where there's a handover to human kings and queens. And so it's there in the Egyptian story, it's there in the Sumerian stories with Gilgamesh being the crossover king between the sky people and the human kings and queens. And in the Eden conspiracy, I show that there's a crossover king or a pivot king in the story of the Bible as well, that we begin with direct rule by this entity called Yahweh who governs over the tribes of Israel. And then they get rid of him and they replace him with a human king King Saul, the first human king in the story. 
And you ask, are they still around? Well, in the Eden Conspiracy, I show that even though they've now offered the top job to Hume King, Saul, and then we have human kings and queens from then on, in fact, Yahweh is still pulling strings from behind closed doors. And it's one of a number of examples that would suggest our ancestors wanted us to know what covert government looks like, what hidden hands in geopolitics look like. They wanted us to know that there is a non-human layer to the governance of Project Earth. And they're not just telling us about how things worked in the past. They're telling us that so that we will understand the world in which you and I live today. Yeah, I, and I wanted to say, do you think do you think that uh, and that like that the Enlil or Marduk could have been the uh, the equivalent to what they were calling Yahweh, or do you think it could have been a mul- like a kind of multiple people or multiple entities, whatever these beings were? Oh, certainly multiple entities, but it is tricky drawing direct equivalences from one canon of stories to another. And a lot of people ask me this, is Enlil Yahweh? Is Yahweh the Bible's name for Enlil or for Enki or for Anu? How do they fit together? And in a sense, you do have to read each narrative tradition in its own terms because they will be carrying memories in stories that have been crafted uniquely by that culture. And they may have a couple of characters who've been conflated and turned into one in the Bible, for instance. But I would say, no, Yahweh isn't Enlil because in the Sumerian stories, Enlil is the space commander. He has command of a region of space in which is planet Earth, and planet Earth is governed over by his brother Enki, his older brother Enki, and they have conflicts over how Project Earth should go forward. In the Bible, Yahweh doesn't even have the authority of Enki. So he's below Enlil and he's below Enki in the great scheme of things. We have a character in the Bible called El Elyon, who appears to be in charge of Project Earth. So maybe El Elyon is Enki. And I say that because we have two passages of scripture where we're told that El Elyon, which means the powerful one more powerful than the other powerful ones, is doling out lands and the human beings who live on those lands, and Yahweh gets a people group with no land. And he's in a bad mood from that moment on, as you could well understand. He appears to be one of the junior Elohim, one of the junior powerful ones. And that is there to be seen in the narratives of the Bible, he then has to go to war against other powerful ones in order to try and get some territory, get some possessions. And unfortunately, his humans get caught in the crossfire. And I think you would be referring to when he tells the, the Jews to go slaughter the the uh, the people of where the Anakim were. Was that correct? And like, I think they had to go up against giant, giants. Is that correct? Or... Um, do you think that yeah. there were, like, when the Jews had to go and invade wherever they invaded, I, I thought it was the land where there were Anakim. I'm not sure. But, um, yes, that's right. correct me. Oh, it is? Okay. Did that's they right. have to go up against, like, giants? And do you think he was trying to take out, like, any remnants of other um, powerful ones or Elohim? Well, 
It wouldn't just be remnants because the stories roll on from there suggesting that we're living in a world where there are separate human colonies, each one governed over by their own powerful one. And the invasion you're talking about is one example of those conflicts where they're having to go into a land that belongs to somebody else in order to claim some land for themselves. And rather than go in in the way that Abraham would and make peace treaties and covenants with the people already in the land, Yahweh runs things differently. It's always warfare with Yahweh. And so he says, you're going to go in there and take some of that land by force. And the spies who go and look at the land say, we can't possibly do that. The people who live there are giants. Now, there is a strand of story in the Bible about who the giants were. There's a story of hybridization in Genesis 6 that suggests there's another E.T. incursion. There's a hybridization program that goes on, and the offspring from that hybridization are people, but much, much larger than normal. And that hybridization is referred to in the Sumerian stories of the Anunnaki. And then in the Bible, we've got this rather similar sounding word, the Anakim. So Anunnaki, Anakim, and they're giants. And so the spies say, we can't possibly go in. Two of them say, I think we can. If we've got Yahweh supporting us, we, we can take some of these guys out. We can get a corner of that land. And that is, in fact, exactly what they do. But the conflicts don't stop there. As I say, the Abrahamic tradition is of occupying the land nomadically, moving through it on the basis of peace treaties, and uh, making agreements with the people already there. But Yahweh really is trying to own land, just like the other Elohim do. And that's the background to his competition with the other powerful ones, his jealousy of the powerful one of Ekron, uh, the loathing with which his writers write about other powerful ones like Dagon. And without that background, the battles of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, really don't make any sense once yeah. you realize that it's all about powerful ones in the plural conflicting with one another for hegemony and resources now the stories come into focus and you can understand what you're reading yeah and, and in the um in the eden conspiracy you talk about different gods that they kind of mention in the bible that people might not know about like um, you get into Asherah, and I find her very interesting because I, I watched your interview with uh, Rex from Lee Project. I love his show. And uh, in, in that interview, you were talking about that there was a possible um, Stargate to Asherah. Is that or, or, some, or something like that? Or it's a doorway, right? But we, we don't know if it's really a Stargate, but it, it could have possibly been at one point or something like that. Who was Asherah? And um, what are these doorways? And I, I think in the book you talk about there's one in Cyprus as well. Right. Yes, that's right. So all around the world, there are cultures which talk about the Great Leap Forward, how their ancestors made the Great Leap Forward from living in animal subsistence on the planet's surface to knowing how to farm and build cities and become a civilization. Knowing how to farm is something quite technical. You do have to do gene modification on naturally occurring plants to turn them into cultivatable crops. And cultures all around the world honor visitors from the stars for this tutelage in agronomy, which is interesting. 
the natural thing would be to invent stories about what geniuses the founders of your culture were. You'd honor the ancestral elders. But so many cultures say, no, it wasn't us. People came from the stars and taught us how to do these things. So in Babylon, you've got the story of Oannes and the Apkalu. Uh, the Zulu people talk about Mbabwana Warisa. The uh, Mayan people, in the Mesoamericans, talk about Hunhunapu. And in the Bible, we have Asherah taking exactly that same role. Very often, it's female entities credited with this ancient tutelage. And Asherah is a figure who was very big in primitive Judaism. If you go to archaeological digs throughout the Levant, figurines of Asherah are probably the most prolific finds you're going to make. Handheld figurines to be used in harvest festivals in which you would thank Asherah for teaching the ancestors all the secrets of agronomy that had lifted us Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. It's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Get the latest on country music, from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. Hear it all on The Stormy Warren Show, weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Tune in. Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. So what is The Big 615? Well, simply put, it's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Get the latest on country music from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. That means a whole lot more music and a whole lot more country. Hear it all on the Stormy Warren Show weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. And I look forward to having you join me on The Big 615. This is your country station, The Big 615. To this new place of comfort on planet Earth. Asherah is remembered with affection, we're told, in the book of Jeremiah and 2 Kings. We're told she was so popular, and the commemorations of her so widespread, that on every high hill, and under every green tree, from every fortified town to every garrison city, in every place they lived, Asherah is remembered with affection. Now, the narrator tells us this as if this is a shock horror story. But by writing this, the author is guaranteed that we never forget that originally there was a plethora of company. The Sever Hashemayim refer to the armies of the sky masses of beings coming and visiting us with high technology, Asherah being one of them. And you, you mentioned the portal. There's a very interesting site uh, in the Levant, Tel El Farah, where we find a nous. And a nous is a very interesting object. It's a doorway. This is carving of a doorway, but there's no building. There's nothing around it, and there's nothing behind it. 
So a doorway with no building, nothing behind it, but advanced beings like Asherah can come through that doorway. I would say that today we have a word for that, and we would call it a portal. And above this particular nous that was found in Tel El Farah, there's a little legend, a carving of a crescent moon and a bunch of stars. The conventional explanation is that that's really a calendar telling you that when those stars are above the horizon and a certain alignment, well, now it's the time of year for the festival where we will celebrate Asherah. And this little doorway implies a building, even if it doesn't show one. So it's saying somewhere near here is a temple where you can give thanks to Asherah at this time of the year. But if we look at that symbology a bit more closely and ask what did that symbology mean in the source culture, that's the culture of ancient Sumeria, Crescent Moon represents the Taurus constellation, and that bunch of stars is not a random bunch of stars. It's the shoulder of the Taurus constellation, the stars of the Pleiades. And so what I'd suggest is that now is telling us how it was that Asherah came to us through a portal, and where she came from, the stars of the Pleiades. And if someone says, well, Paul, that's a bit of a stretch, it might be, until you read that alongside narratives from original Australians, First Nation Australians, from Native American traditions, the Cherokee people, uh, the Lakota people, they speak of visitors coming from where? The Pleiades. In the deep past, to do what? To teach us all the secrets of agriculture, how to live in balance with the land. So what people might have heard from indigenous traditions around the world, I show in the Eden Conspiracy, that's in the Bible, and it's in archaeological artifacts that we have found. And the fact that there are standing stones at Tel El Farah, Tel Arad, and throughout Levant, that is the ancient custom for marking the places where our ancestors met these ancient visitors. The most famous being Jacob erecting the standing stones at Bethel, marking the place where beings came from space, landed on the Earth's surface, went back up into space via the ladder. So he erects these standing stones. And the tradition goes, there's a portion of one of those standing stones underneath the chair on which Charles was crowned King Charles III, because the claim is being made. The right to rule comes from those who came from the stars. Originally, we were governed by them, but here's a piece of the stone representing that contact, showing that now there are human successors following in their tradition. You know what, Paul? One thing I was going to say is I, I think that something that kind of proves that, that, that they're trying to cover something up here is that some of these sites are being deliberately destroyed. Is that correct? Or because I know that's I know like Matthew LaCroix talks about like in Eridu that how like it's just kind of being like destroyed. And it's sad because these are like the ancient sites that show our history. Now, I know you're talking about somewhere different. You're talking about in Israel. But like I, just to compare, I, I don't think that Eridu is the only place that that's happening. Am I right with that? Or? You're, you're absolutely correct. So from the 8th century on, there was a campaign to destroy those sites. So the standing stones were broken, knocked down, the temples to the other powerful beings were demolished, and it's still happening today. 
I, until recently, was living in Canberra, uh, the capital of Australia, and there's an ancient site there which should be under a World Heritage Order because it is an ancient place of meeting and education by a culture that goes back at least 60,000 years in Australia, and there's evidence it could go back as far as 120,000 years. Well, that's been slated by the Canberra government as a site for townhouses, and it's going to be redeveloped. A couple of years ago, there was a certain mining company, I won't mention its name, that was allowed to blow up a critical site in the Jukun Gorge, which carried hard copy of original Australian memory of life before, during and after the last ice age. So an incredible trove of information which was blown up. Oh, they made an apology, quote, for any offence caused. Um, so it's continuing now as it ever has done. The narrative of ancient contact is not one that has really been welcomed by the powers. And what we see in happening in the Bible, and it's all laid out for us, it's explained to us that Judaism was pared down so that you've got one God, one king, one high priest, one temple in Jerusalem, neatly ordered theocratic society. Well, that's not so different from the agenda of every empire from that time to this, who want a neatly ordered society where the idea of God is simply endorsing the power structures that are. And for that reason, these more complicated memories are being airbrushed out. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to go off track here, but I, I just want to touch on like the kind of what's going on with religion over in the Middle East, too, because like, you know, like, it seems like these people don't realize that these were religions that, you know, if we talk about the Abrahamic religions. They were religions that were kind of set up by the Anunnaki or the powerful ones or the Elohim or whatever you want to call it. And and and. And we see today there's still between the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews, like constant fighting, you know, in, in the Levant and, and uh, Babel, the old Babylon where Saddam Hussein was trying to resurrect the old Babylon. Um, it seems to be like rampant over there. And I, I think that the people who are studying the ancient contact have a better idea of what really happened. But people are kind of brainwashed with their religious ideas, and then and they actually go to war over it. Like, do we? Do would you think we ever see any clarity to this issue, or what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think many of the wars that we've fought through the ages have been proxy wars. And that's certainly the story of the Bible, where you have colonies of humans who have no argument with each other, but the powerful ones who govern over them are in competition, hence the battles, hence the warfare. And that wouldn't be so different to wars in modern times, which are about power, control, territory, resources, who has the access to oil, who has the access to the resources under key land, still motivates the powers. But again, I'd say that our ancestors believed you'll never come to a full understanding of why things happen the way they do until you realize there's a non-human layer to our governance, to these kinds of decisions. The history of warfare is probably not a bad place to go and look and find decisions that seem to be being made with scarcely any care to the human collateral that certain decisions uh, 
are going to result in. There's a, a famous moment in the First World War that illustrates this, where bearing in mind you've got cousins warring with each other. When I say cousins, I'm talking about the extended royal family that governed over the whole of Europe at that time. They've gone to war against each other in the First World War. That's where the argument appears to be. And then on Christmas Day, the German and the British troops pause because it's Christmas and they can't bear to be killing each other on Christmas Day. And so there is the Christmas Day truce where the working class boys in the English trenches and the working class boys in the German trenches come out and they talk to each other and they play soccer for that day. And then the next day they go back into their trenches and start murdering each other again. And that moment illustrates that the working class boys of Britain and the working class boys of Germany had no argument against each other. This was a war on behalf of the powers. And so many of our wars are like that. And I think it's that understanding of things that we're offered in the pages of the Hebrew scriptures when we read them through the lens of paleocontact. If we read them all as God's stories, then the only moral of the story is you do what God tells you, whether it makes sense to you or not. Read it through the lens of paleocontact, and there's a rich education there helping us understand why the world works as it does and giving us clues as to how we might have a better human experience. That's, that, I would really like the way you explain that. Thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, I have a, co a co lot of other things, but um, I wanted you to take us to the beginning of the book because we kind of touched on this already. In the first chapter, you talk about a festival that you went to in Brazil where they were kind of honoring the, the, the jumpstart of humanity. Like, but at first you thought it was kind of like a Christian um, uh, meeting. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. I was there as a young theologian training for the priesthood in the Church of England. And my job while I was there for several months was to assess the what was called ecclesiogenesis, which was this amazing grassroots eruption of Christianity uh, throughout Amazonia. And on virtually my first day, I got taken to a beautiful little town in Amazonia, in Pernambuco, where they were holding this festival, a harvest festival, I was told. So I thought, okay, well, I know what one of those is. We used to do them at school. Once a year, we would all bring our spare tins of food and give them to the school or to the church, and then they would be given as charity. And it was a way of saying thank you to God for the latest harvest. So when they said we're going to Pesquera for a harvest festival, that's what I thought was going on. When I got there, it was amazing. I had never seen an entire town party before, and that's what it was music in every square, dancing in every square, tables in every square and street, laden with food derived from corn. There were savouries, there were desserts, there were drinks, all derived from corn. I had no idea you could do so many things with corn, but you can. And then as we got towards the end of the evening, the dance turned into a procession. The procession moved towards the church where we were going to have a mass. People were carrying these 
figurines of a female entity. Now, my Brasileiro was not very strong at that time, so I was working hard to have a conversation to understand what was happening. We're celebrating and giving thanks to the Queen of Heaven who gave us the gift of corn thousands of years ago. And I'm puzzling over this because I'm thinking the Queen of Heaven, well, in Roman Catholicism, that's a title given to Mary, Jesus's mum. But she wasn't in Brazil thousands of years ago giving lessons in agricultural science. So something was not quite adding up. And then I was told the Pope is trying to stop most of what we're doing here. He's happy with the mass, but everything we do before the corn festival itself, carrying of the corn figurines, the cleaning of the steps before we go into the, he's wanting to stop all of that because he said, that is, my guide told me, this is indigenous practice. This has come from West Africa. This has come from indigenous Brazilians. He wants only the Catholic mass, the Portuguese contribution. It took me decades to sift through what I've been told and what I'd seen and realize that what my guide, Augusto, was explaining to me was this was not a Catholic festival. This was an indigenous memory of the great leap forward, maybe 10,000 years ago, maybe even earlier than that. And though it wasn't Jesus's mum who came and gave that ancient tutelage, it was Hun Hunapu in the Mayan tradition, Mbab Wana Warisa in the Zulu tradition, Oanus and the Apkalu in the Babylonian tradition. It was a celebration of paleo contact. And I should say, in case anyone doesn't know, paleo contact means the theory that in the deep past our ancestors had contact with other civilizations. I didn't realize that what we were celebrating in Brazil is celebrated by cultures all around the world, and that if I'd gone back to the 8th or 7th century BCE, I would have found an almost identical festival at places like Tel Arad and Tel Al-Farah, where they also carried female figurines honoring the Queen of Heaven, a title given to Asherah and the other beings who represent that same tradition in other cultures around the world. That's fascinating. I love that story. And I love when you talk about it in the book. It's it's, uh, it's amazing. And then, they, they, like you said, they have that festival in the second chapter. You kind of get into it. They have that festival in Jerusalem as well, right? Yes, that's right. So this isn't sort of way out in regional Judea where they might not be you know, up to date on what things should be happening in Judaism. Right next to Jerusalem, you've got these same festivals going on. And in fact, the great hey there it's your friend stormy warren here and i want to invite you to my new home the big 615 exclusively on tune in it's the official home of country music broadcasting live from nashville to the world get the latest on country music from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts oh and it's commercial free hear it all on the stormy warren show weekdays from 7 a.m to 1 p.m central download the free tune in app from the app store that's tune in or ask your device to play the big 615 on tune in 
Hey, y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call The Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play the Big 615 on TuneIn. King of the Hebrew tradition, King Solomon, had erected a temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh, but he had also erected a temple in a town adjacent to Jerusalem, a whole temple to Asherah. And often we forget that when we read in the Bible about the priests of Asherah and the priests of Baal, these were Jewish priests. There were numerous priesthoods in ancient Judaism. And the king himself had erected this temple and was making sure these priests were deployed to commemorate Asherah. Throughout Judea, there were temples scattered, honoring different advanced beings, which included Yahweh and included Asherah. And altogether, they were referred to as the El Ba'adat, the Council of Powers, and the Tseva Hashemayim, the Sky Armies. That's I love that word. That's that the Shiva Hashemayim, the sky. That's amazing. Um, but what, one one person I wanted to uh, touch on uh, that you you kind of wrote about in the book, and I was surprised that you brought him up in the book because he, I, I think you were trying to kind of argue against what he says, like not in a bad way or anything. Like what, who I'm talking about is Michael Heiser. Now let me I'll just explain to you my experience with Michael Heiser, like. I've been very critical of his work. I haven't really spoken about it on the podcast, but I've heard him on Art Bell. He's been coming on Art Bell for years. And when I've heard him on Art Bell, he's been very critical of the Sumerian stories. He puts it down. He tries to say that the Anunnaki aren't mentioned in the Sumerian text. I mean, I, I literally heard him say that at one point. Like, I, I mean, he's been very, very critical of the stories, but I think you kind of battle against that in the book. Like, and I, and again, I don't want to put anybody down. I'm not, I'm not doing that. He, I think he's, he's done great work or whatever, but I think the people just have conflicting ideas. What are your thoughts on his work? Cause you did bring him up in the book, right? I think what Michael Heiser has done is point out to Christians in particular, that there's a lot more going on in the Bible than has become the mainstream curriculum. And he points out that there are a plethora of beings being referenced. And he explains the meaning of the language and says, yes, there's a spectrum of beings here. He then does acknowledge some relationship between the biblical stories of the Elohim, which is the catch-all word for those beings, the powerful ones, and the sky people, of the Sumerian stories. What Michael says, though, is he believes the Elohim stories are an inversion of the Sumerian stories. So he concedes the Sumerian stories came first, and the Bible carries a summary form of those stories. Michael suggests that the biblical stories are banking on the readers knowing the Sumerian stories, but now they're going to give a spin that will put those stories in their place and replace them with the new God story. I would say that claim does not stand up to scrutiny. I would say it's pretty clear. 
that if you read the Enuma Elish, for instance, alongside the biblical narratives, it becomes very clear not only that the Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, and Assyrian stories came first, but that the Bible is not inverting them or criticizing them. It's giving us a summary form. It's the same stories. So the conflict between Enlil and Enki, and it's up to Michael Heiser whether he calls them Anunnaki or not. I call them sky people. Enki and Enlil are in conflict in the Sumerian story over how many human beings there should be, how intelligent they should be, how long they should live, whether they should be a race of clones or a fully fertile species and intelligent, how much ET DNA they should have in them, and then how to get rid of them. We will limit their lifespans, and now we're going to genocide them with a flood. That's the Enlil and Enki story. It's the same story in the Bible, in the Genesis 3, Genesis 6 narrative. It's not been inverted. It's not been swapped around. There's no criticism of the Sumerians. It's been repeated. And so I would just directly challenge Michael Heiser on that claim that the biblical stories are an inversion of the Sumerian stories. They are a repetition of, they are a summary of. And this has been known in academic circles since the 1870s when George Smith published his book, The uh, Genesis of the Chaldeans. I love that And one. then that work was... Um, highlighted fresh in the 1890s by Nathaniel Schmidt. And from that time to this, there's really been no excuse for other academics to understand the dependence of the biblical stories on the Sumerian ones, to understand that many of our God's stories are based on stories of sky people, entities which today we would call ETs. And I think one of the things that motivates me in writing books like The Eden Conspiracy, it frustrates me that academics know this stuff. They know that these God stories are based on stories of sky people, what I think we should call it, like ETs, but that knowledge is not filtered through to the rank and file of the churches. And I think Michael goes so far, but by not following the logic uh, and reaching the point of saying, yes, these are stories of ETs and our God stories are based on those, by not doing that, it almost smokescreens what's going on. So this is why I'm going to keep writing books, uh, laying out this information, showing the data, showing the logic, because more and more people need to know this, because we need to set us, ourselves free from a distorted view of God, and we need to be ready to engage in a world where contact is more and more in the news. How are believers supposed to make sense of the claims of David Grush and Haim Ashed and Louis Elizondo and Alan Gier and Chris Mellon and Dmitry Medvedev and Paul Hellier and Ed Mitchell, if they haven't got their heads around the fact that there are ETs in the Bible, there was contact in the past, why on earth would there not be contact today? Yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting. And, I, and going back to the Sumerian stories, I always tell people like to, to really under, get an understanding of what happened in the past. It's always, I say, I always tell people to read the Enumilish, the Atrahasis, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Sumerian Kings list. I think those are the four main ones that people should really 
dig into. And I always tell people like, you know, like they can read your work. They can read Zachariah Sitchin. They can read so many, uh, so all the old translators you mentioned, like Samuel Nomer Kramer, Samuel Nomer Kramer, excuse me, Austin Henry Laird, George Smith. But what I was saying was, um, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, to, to get an understanding of those. And then you can kind of go, branch off and you can get into like the legend of Atana and the Code of Hammurabi. But I think those four main ones give a good idea of what really happened. Which Oh, oh, I know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. I was going to tell people you can go to Oxford.com, Oxford um, ETCSL. Uh, they have a thing. You can read the, the tablets on there. They have them translated, which I thought was amazing by Oxford. But would you agree that those are like the four main ones that people should probably read to get to get better understanding of this topic? Definitely. And in my books, I have made a point of only using the most widely accepted translation of the cuneiform tablets, because I didn't want people coming to me and saying, oh, that's just your interpretation of those stories. Uh, and you have an ET bias. No, I've used the most widely accepted translations. And I'm saying, rather than get into arguments over translation over individual words, follow the narratives, because the narratives themselves will tell you that we are dealing with colonization, that we're dealing with hybridization, so on and so forth. There really is no ambiguity in it. And I would have to uh, give a nod to Zechariah Sitchin, because he was the one really who rubbed in our faces the ET implications of the cuneiform texts, of the Mesopotamian stories. We were able to read those stories translated from the 1870s on, and then 100 years later, Zechariah Sitchin is saying, uh -huh, excuse me, let's pause, stop and think here. Anunnaki, what does that mean? Sky people, who are they? These are extraterrestrials we're talking about. But, you know, when I wrote my Eden books, I started out on this research path for Escaping from Eden was the first one. And I'd never heard of Zechariah Sitchin because we didn't get taught about him in school. I'd never heard of the Sumerians. Somehow, when I was at school, we acted as if the Roman Empire was the first, or maybe the Egyptians was the first appearance of civilization. There was nothing before for some reason, we don't cover the first civilization we know about, the Sumerians, who carry all these interesting stories. So I'd never heard of Zechariah Sitchin. And only towards the end of writing Escaping from Eden did I discover him. And I thought, oh, my goodness, should I stop writing and read everything Zechariah Sitchin said so that I can be across this? And I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I am going to follow my data and my logic. My background is as a theological educator, 33 years in church-based ministry, as a church doctor, archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia, and a theological educator training pastors in the interpretation of ancient texts. Those are my skills. That's my background. I'm going to apply those skills to these anomalies in the text and see where it takes me. And if at the end of that journey... I've reached similar conclusions to Zechariah Sitchin or others, then that's far more interesting to the reader. Rather than me writing a he said, she said book, the reader will say, oh my goodness, this person has reached this conclusion from this start point. This writer has reached it from this start point, another from this start point. 
And the overlap between what we're saying, I think, adds weight to what we're saying, that the reader will say, there must be something here if people using different disciplines are reaching such similar conclusions. I agree. And one thing I wanted to ask you, I think this would be fun to ask about. It, it's, it's, uh, it, what, what do you think the biggest differences were between Zachariah Sitchin and Eric Von Daniken, like, um, like for the audience that might not know? Well, Zechariah Sitchin uh, was a, an alumnus of the LSC. He was in the world of co uh, commerce, but he had a fascination with the ancient Sumerian texts, and he worked hard on interpreting them and then thinking through the implications of those stories. But he went further and he studied ancestral narratives around the world, and like me, he was struck by the overlap of these stories. And once he'd synthesized his view, he presented his view through his books, which he wrote in a fictionalized way, which is also interesting because my books are written in a similar fashion. Neither of us wrote textbooks with footnotes and references. We tell stories so that people can get the big picture idea uh, with enough referencing that the reader can then go back and check out the validity of what we're saying. So this is what Zechariah Sitchin did. Eric von Daniken was more of a textbook approach. His start point, like mine, was in the Bible, in the world of Bible translation. When he was still at school, he went to a Jesuit school and he was required to translate the texts from Hebrew into Latin, from Greek into French and to and fro to really understand what was going on in the texts. And it was while he was doing that in years 11 and 12, that he thought, hang on, there's something else going on here. Where that led Eric was to travel the world looking for essentially archaeological artifacts to support this view of paleocontact. He came to believe that our evolution as a species made better sense if you allow for the possibility of an external intervention. And so his landmark book, Chariots of the Gods, was a collation of archaeological evidences from all around the world that add weight to the paleocontact claim. So that's how they compare. And for me, I, I'm not an archaeologist. And even though I do refer to archaeological evidences and scientific evidences in neuroscience, in DNA research, my grounding is in the interpretation of ancient texts. And that's what keeps me rooted in the topic People who read Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, The Eden Conspiracy, will see that's where I'm coming from. I'm pointing less to objects and more to stories that cultures have curated over tens of thousands of years and saying, listen to what they're saying with respect. Now let's think through the implications. I, I agree. That's so well said. I, I mean, because once you read the ancient accounts, you can't go back, right? It's like, it's so interesting. And, and one thing I wanted to bring up, I also listened to your Coast to Coast interview, which was also brilliant, by the way. And in that Coast to Coast interview, you talked about ancient technologies. And this is one of the last questions I have. I, I kind of wanted to go over one thing, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, what what uh, what evidence do we have in the Bible for ancient technologies? If you could go over that, sure. Well, for centuries we've had translators working on the ancient texts 
who believed they were reading a spiritual book and were expecting to find spiritual phenomena. And they had no technological grid for some of what they were reading about. The wonderful thing is we still have the ancient texts. We still have the Hebrew. We still have the Aramaic. We still have the Greek. So that translators today can go back to those same texts and have another go at understanding what the ancients told us. So we have a word like kavod, which gets translated as glory. The root meaning is big heavy thing. We have a word like ruach, which gets translated as the spirit of God, but the root meaning is a movement of air or something that causes a movement of air. We have a word like tub, which gets translated as goodness, but at root it actually means the goods. So in the Eden Conspiracy, I say there are a number of words like this, which we're used to seeing translated in a particular way. What if we leave them untranslated? Hey y'all, it's Garth. I love the country music family. I love the country music family of artists and the country music family of songs. Some of the greatest artists to ever grace music are under the flag of country music. And some of the greatest songs in music history are under the flag of country music. The Big 615, you're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. And I think the country music family is one of those families that is very inclusive and wants both the established artists and the new artists to be side by side in this thing we call country music. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Hey, y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call The Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn translated and watch how they behave very quickly you'll work out that a kavod is a craft this big heavy thing can carry people and launch and land vertically spacex style as moses describes it to us in exodus he talks about this pillar with cloud and smoke and fire that accompanies it whenever it travels and it can launch and land vertically spacex style and it will shake the ground as it lands and launches. Moses is told you can't be out in the open when it launches, otherwise it will kill you. Now, I've seen a space shuttle launch. I follow that logic. The technicians who operate launches from Cape Canaveral are miles away behind reinforced concrete before anything launches. So we totally understand what Moses is saying. And he describes what the Kavod looks like from the outside. Ezekiel tells us what it looks like from the inside. He describes the metal texture, the clear texture of the canopy, the appearance of the wheels described in such detail that NASA has a patent on them. 1974, the omnidirectional wheel patented by Josef Blumrich. He talks about the sound of the engines when they power up, the vibration of the craft 
as the engines fire up and it moves. The feeling of the G-forces as it launches. We're left in no doubt that the kavod, the big heavy thing, and the ruach, the thing that makes a blast of air, is a craft. He talks about the rotors, how they respond to voice commands. And then in that same section of Ezekiel that describes the kavod and the ruach, he talks about other technology, the keli mashatau and the keli mapasau. Six individuals equipped with one of those can do a great deal of damage, it seems. Those translate as the destroying thing, the shattering thing, the disintegrating thing. Six individuals with a disintegrating thing can ethnically cleanse an entire district, apparently. So we're talking about some impressive technology. Elsewhere, we've got references to the Urim and the Thummim, which are remote communications devices. The Ark of the Covenant operates as a remote communications device. And there are parallels to this kind of technology in other traditions too. And when you read the stories surrounding them, it becomes clear that the ancient writers simply described what they saw. And more recent writers have tried to reinterpret it as spiritual phenomena. You and I, who've seen a telephone, who've seen a walkie-talkie, who've seen a Bluetooth earpiece, who's seen a rocket launch, who's seen a drone, can read all those stories, who's seen automatic weaponry, can read all those and say, I think I have a pretty shrewd idea what is going on here. And the ancient writers have been absolutely faithful in describing what they saw. We're now at a point technologically where we can believe what they told us. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. There was a couple of, there was somebody in the chat brought up Ezekiel's will. Do you believe Ezekiel's will was a, an example of advanced technology? Yes, it is a fascinating text, the Ezekiel one. I encourage everyone to go and read it. The wheel I was talking about was the wheels that were attached to the Ruach. Anyone reading the modern translation would be confused why the Spirit of God would have wheels attached to it. But they are described... <laughs> Uh, in such detail, the wheels can take you forward and sideways without moving. Joseph Blumrich was a uh, research and development engineer for NASA in the 1970s. He didn't believe Eric von Daniken when Eric von Daniken had been invited to give a presentation at NASA and had mentioned technology in Ezekiel. Joseph Blumrich said, Mr. Daniken, you're not going to find technology in the Bible. It's a spiritual book. Eric von Daniken simply said, have you read the book of Ezekiel recently? I challenge you to go away and do that. Josef Blumrich did. He read it with an engineer's mind. He drew up schematics of the omnidirectional wheel. And as I say, he got a patent on it in 1974. And that omnidirectional wheel is still used in remote rovers by NASA to this very day. So the idea that NASA would have a, a patent on the spirit of God is ridiculous. It has a patent on the technology described in such detail that it can be replicated. Yeah, that's fascinating. And the only other que the other question from the chat was, uh, I just picked this out, I thought this would be a good one. That someone mentioned cargo culture, and I know you know what that is, but like, do you think like humanity was an example of cargo culture, like an advanced species coming here and with technology, so we thought obviously thought there were gods, and 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 the, we've seen this happen throughout history. Like our, the United States soldiers have went to remote islands where the people thought they were gods because they had airplanes. You know, um, was this just another example of that, or our ancient paleo contact? 
I think so. I think if you've got primitive human beings who are the survivors of a planetary cataclysm and have never seen anything technological, if those people see beings arrive with um, equipment so sophisticated and powerful that they can affect weather patterns and they can reclaim land uh, and then can actually do genetic engineering on crops and animals and even themselves, of course those primitive humans are going to say, well, these must be our gods. Let's worship these. Of course, what else could they do? And indeed, we're told in the uh, Sumerian stories that we became the workforce for the gods. And we were taught and trained, programmed to worship these more powerful beings as if they were gods. So yes, of course, that would happen. And then in terms of cargo cult and imitating the technology we've seen, I would say that's what we see in the Urim and Thummim that the ancient Hebrews were trying to replicate remote communications technology that they had seen their visitors use, but they didn't know how to make it or how to make it work, which is why if they're using those or the Ark of the Covenant, they are also creating altered states of consciousness to try and get contact going. And so there's this heady cocktail of aromatic oils that absolutely drench the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple, that's how you're going to get contact experiences. And I parallel that with the, the story of the Jaguar dynasty. You have these carvings of technology. They wear things that look like mouthpieces and earpieces. But in order to get remote communication going, they will do a bloodletting to create an altered state of consciousness whereby you'll begin having contact experiences. And I think that tells us that these depictions of what look like technology are depictions of things they had created, aping the technology they'd seen used by a previous civilization and advanced culture who'd governed over them in the past. So I think Cargo Cult summarizes all that quite nicely. Yeah, you know, one, one thing I just thought of that, uh, one, one last question, this is the last question I have is I just had to bring this up. Like in your book, when I was reading it, you, you mentioned a small part about Moloch. And you say in the book of Leviticus, we read of child sacrifices to Moloch. Like who was this Moloch? Was, could we say he was just another Elohim or do we have any, was, did he have a Sumerian equivalent or, because uh, I've heard some people think that he might have been Marduk. Um, or Marduk, or however you want to say it. But um, do we know anything more about this deity? And um, and uh, he obviously had a presence to make it in the Bible, right? Because like so many of the Anunnaki figures we don't see in the Bible, but I mean, we see like Anana in the Bible, Asherah, um, and, you know, uh, Yahweh, which could be, you know, uh, an Anunnaki. But um, what, what, who, who exactly was this Moloch character? That's a great question. The pattern of child sacrifice can be found in many ancient cultures. It can be found in Mesoamerica, and it can certainly be found in the biblical narratives. And it's condemned by the narrators. Of course it would be condemned. Child sacrifice, what's the meaning of it? If you can get a human being to surrender a child as a sacrifice offering, then clearly you have total control over that human being, if it's terrorized to that point. If you can terrorize a human being to the point where they will surrender their firstborn child, that's absolute control. And it's almost as if some of these beings 
liked to toy with human beings and torment them in this kind of a way. We see this happening human to human in warfare, even to this day. And apparently it was part of the experience of colonization in the deep past. It happened here in Australia. I'm sorry to say when the British took Australia, the same kind of torture and tormenting of parents uh, with the execution of children and babies. So in a way we shouldn't be shocked to find it in the deep past when it's happened as recently as that by cultures as civilized as Great Britain. It's, it's deeply shocking and deeply disturbing and we're reassured to see the narrators condemn it. When the narrators of the Bible condemn it, they condemn what they call Moloch sacrifices. And scholars disagree over whether it's talking about sacrifices to a particular powerful one who was really into this, or whether Moloch sacrifices is a name for child sacrifice made to whomever. And that's, that's the direction I would lead. And there's some suggestion that Moloch sacrifices were made to other named powerful ones in the scriptures. But they are condemned. I mean, there is the story, if you remember, of Abraham, where the powerful ones ask him to make a Moloch sacrifice. And then a messenger of Yahweh says, no, don't do that, because that's my inheritance that you're dealing with there. And he tells Abraham not to do it, give them something else. And he said, I can see how afraid of the powerful ones you are. That's how that story goes. Once you translate Elohim as powerful ones and you translate Yahweh as a particular entity. So I think that's what it's about. And we see the move away from that kind of terror in the pages of the Old Testament and the pages of the Hebrew scriptures. And as we move away from a time of direct rule to a time of covert government, where these ET entities are still pulling strings, but not face to face. They're not a visible presence on the planet's surface. They set up the structures to enable them to govern from afar in exactly the same way that um, the British and other empires have done by invading other people's countries, setting up the banking systems, the legal systems, the trade agreements, so on and so forth. Then they can retire let the locals become the police force, the army, let the locals elect one of their own. Once they set those things up, they can go home and still benefit from sitting at the top of the economic tree. And I think we see a similar pivot in the ancient stories. But the warning in the Bible, and I spent a lot of time on this in the Eden Conspiracy, is beware covert government. Beware the ET layer in the story of humanity. Beware the hidden hand in the geopolitics of the world and be involved. I think right now there's a great call, having heard from Hamish Shedd, having heard from David Grush, that we should be far more involved in what this contact means. We shouldn't sit back and say, oh, it's all right, I'm sure covert government's looking after us. I want to know who's representing us on the Galactic Federation, who's representing us on what the Bible called the Elba Adat, the Council of Powers, the Sky Council, in whose interests are decisions being taken. I think the more informed we are, the more hopeful we can be of decisions in our interests. And what our ancestors wanted us to know is that that council isn't all populated by entities we might watch in Mars attacks or invasion of the body snatchers or Independence Day. We have friends in high places, friends like 
Asherah of the biblical memory, friends like Hunhunapu of the Mayan story. And I am hopeful because we have friends like that from the Pleiades, from Sirius, who are contending for us. Now, that might sound like a ridiculous claim if I were to say it of my own accord. But once you've read the Bible through the lens of paleocontact, you realize something like that must be going on. And as you listen to these new claims, you won't be surprised by anything we're hearing. I, I think that's really well said. Well, that's all the questions I have. Like, I hope, I just hope we see disclosure in our time, Paul. I, I don't know if it's going to ever happen or, or, or what, you know, it's, it's so exciting. I think this is the most well, exciting time to be living on earth though. I really do. I agree because I agree with you, Robert. It's incredibly exciting because this is more disclosure than ever I've seen before. You know, when the Pentagon uh, publicly admits that it has alien artifacts, which it did in 2019, when it gives a license, gives permission, written permission to David Grush to come forward and make the claims that they've got intact UFO craft and have had contact with extraterrestrial races, he's got the license to say that, though apparently the Pentagon doesn't necessarily agree with everything he's saying. Well, what does that mean? It's a hair's breadth from an official acknowledgement of contact, and that's the closest we've been in my lifetime. So I'm excited for where this leads. I hope journalists will stay on top of this story, because if they do, then by the end of the year, it should be public knowledge that we're in contact. And it just takes, I think, the journalists to stay on the story, not let it go away, keep the pressure up, because we're closer to that kind of disclosure that we've been waiting for uh, than we've been since the 1940s. And it is a time to push forward and not to hold back. Well, that's really well said. Well, um, Paul, thank you so much for doing this again. And uh, thank you for answering the questions from the chat. Like, this was amazing. And um, can you tell everybody where they can find the Eden Conspiracy and the Eden series? And uh, thank you so much, Paul. I love talking to you. It's, it's really an honor. Oh, likewise, Rob. I always enjoy our conversations. I love how informed you are. I love how you keep the space open for this kind of conversation. If people want to read the Eden Conspiracy or... Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. Go to Amazon and Kindle. You'll find all four of them there. The first two you can find wherever books are sold. You can find me at fifthkind.tv. I'm in the comments on YouTube every day on the Fifth Kind TV and the Paul Wallace channel. And if you want a longer conversation with me or to do coaching with me, go to www.paulanthonywallace.com. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh... Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. So what is The Big 615? Well, simply put, it's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Get the latest on country music from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. That means a whole lot more music and a whole lot more country. Hear it all on the Stormy Warren Show weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. 
Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. And I look forward to having you join me on The Big 615. This is your country station. The Big 615.